open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. We come to a very sober subject today because we will be dealing with Satan as we approach Ephesians chapter 6 and his host of demons. And certainly as we look at that subject, praise God for our victory uh, that is over, that is in Christ uh, over the devil and our protection against the enemy. Let me read Ephesians chapter 6 and we'll start at verse 10 and maybe I'll read down through 17. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as, and he says, and as shoes for your, excuse me, as to shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace and in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, we're so needy of you needy of this text. Father, we praise you for the victory that is ours, but certainly we have a foe. We have an enemy. Some have come even discouraged for whatever circumstance today. And Father, we recognize that we fight not against flesh and blood, that in our ability to be unified and holy, we fight against a a foe. And Father, may we be aware of his devices that we might apply the truth of the word of God. Help us to that end in your name, amen. Over 300 years ago, Puritan preacher Thomas Brooks wrote to his flock about Satan. And here's what he said. He said, beloved, in our dearest Lord, Christ, Scripture, your own hearts and Satan's devices are the four prime things that should be first and most studied and searched. If any, Brooks said, cast off the study of these, they cannot be safe here. And so he said, it is my work as a watchman to discover the fullness of Christ, the emptiness of the creature, and the snares of the great deceiver, end of quote. And certainly as we heed Brooks' warning, we turn our thoughts to Satan's devices and our resources that have been given to us in the word of God to defeat him. 
Now, we've been studying, I think I've got here, this is message number 79 on Ephesians. And we've been looking at that twin purpose in the context of our position in Christ, laid out in one through three, and then our practice in Christ in four through six. We talked about the creed, if you will, of what we believe and what's been given to us in one through three, and then the practice is the doing of that in four through six. Now, as we came into chapter 4, I just make a little note for you. Look over at verse 1. He told us there to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, and he used that word walk. In other words, as you get to the practice, he's telling us to walk day by day in our Christian life in order to please him. Look at 417. He says, I say to you and testify in the Lord that you no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In other words, you need to walk in a manner worthy, but one of the ways you're not going to walk is the way that you lived prior to Christ. Look down in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 2. He tells us there to walk in love. If you're looking at your scripture in 5.17, he says, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. But he says in verse 15, look back there, be carefully how you walk. And so you need to walk in wisdom. And then he told us and commanded us in 5.18 to be filled with the Spirit and to be mutually submissive to one another. And if we're filled with the Spirit, we're going to give thanks. If we're filled with the Spirit, we're going to have joy. And if we're filled with the Spirit, we're going to be mutually submissive. And so from that point, he launched into a series of relationships, as you know. We spoke of the wife's role. We spoke of the husband's role. We spoke of the children's role to obey. We spoke of the parents' role to not provoke their children to wrath. And then we finished on our role at work. And all of that comes under the worthy walk and the spirit-filled life. But you understand, and I do, that life in Christ is not easy. You have an enemy that is against you. You, the scripture tells us, are in a battle. The Christian life is warfare. And so look down at the text. He begins it by saying, finally, and I don't, I I think he's just going to a new paragraph. He's walking forward in the text, but here's a new thought. And this paragraph will run from verse 10 down through verse 20. And one of the key themes that you'll see in this section, and it's probably the key theme altogether, is you could understand the direction of it by just one word, and it's the word stand. Stand. So what you have in Ephesians 2, 6, you've been seated in the heavenly places in Christ. There's your position, seated, if you will. Then you need to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And then you can really understand Ephesians in that category. Now you need to stand. So you've been seated, if you will. You are to walk this way, as we've discussed 
and now you are to stand. In fact, look at verse 11 where it says you put on the armor of God. You can underline that, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Look at verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to, similar word, withstand in the evil day. It says, having done all to stand firm. Verse 14, stand therefore. And so he mentions that word stand four separate times. And you might ask the question, who are you to stand against. Well, look again at verse 11. Here's our foe. It says, stand against. He said, the schemes of the devil, you're standing against, look at verse 12, our wrestle is not against flesh and blood, but against, and then he lists these demonic categories in verse 12, rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces, it says, of evil in the heavenly places. And so we're standing against our foe. We're standing against our enemy. Glance down at verse 16. It's spelled out there who is our enemy. It says, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming darts. He says, there of the enemy and there of the missiles of the devil. So meet your enemy. He is the devil. He is the evil one. 2 Corinthians 2.11 would say to you this morning that it says there that we would not be outwitted, outwitted in the ESV by Satan. And Paul said in 2 Corinthians 2.11, we are not ignorant of his designs. Or in the NASB, we're not ignorant of his Schemes is the word. In Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis makes a memorable statement regarding the person of Satan. He said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. And he said, one of those is to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. In other words, I'll just put it this way, to sensationalize the whole thought of spiritual warfare. Uh, Lewis would say you need to avoid that. In fact, when I grew up, there was a book, maybe some of you know it, and probably named after that scripture there. It was called This Present Darkness. How many of you remember that book? number of you written by Frank Peretti. At one point, it was the largest seller ever in the history of publishing. In other words, it captured everybody's attention, this present darkness, maybe to the point where it went beyond what was normal, beyond what was necessary. It sensationalized this whole text, and so you have to be careful of that. And I have read stuff like the demon of post-nasal drip. I mean, this stuff's in print. If you've got a runny nose, it's a demon of post-nasal drip. Some people are looking for a demon under every rock. 
Some are casting out demons, binding demons. Some are conducting exorcisms. And it's very sensationalized. There was a comedian that grew up in, at least at my time, I think his name was Mike Warnke. I think that was his name. And he was supposedly a, a satanic priest offering blood to animals. And not too many years ago, he said that that was all fiction. He made the whole story up because he caught and, you know, put a big crowd together if you wanted to come listen to this guy to tell you about how he was converted and how he came to Christ, but he said that he made most of it up. So there is a sensationalizing, I think that's what uh, Lewis is addressing, having an excessive, and I'm speaking to you, having an unhealthy interest in this present darkness is wrong. But on the other extreme, and the other way that you must avoid in this sense, is to deny Satan's reality in this world. So on the one hand, it's too much. And then on the other hand, some deny his reality in this world. I mean, beloved, I don't need to tell you that Satan is our enemy. He's our enemy to your holiness. He's your enemy in your home. He's your enemy at work. This is the context. So lest we do pie in the sky, everything's okay. It's not all okay. You battle both your flesh, but here you and I battle the devil. He is seeking to destroy you. He is seeking to discourage you. He is seeking to tempt you to sin, to tempt you to immorality, to tempt you to pride, to tempt you to lie, to tempt you to lust, to tempt you to pornography, to tempt you to greed. And I think what the scripture is going to say is you need to wake up. You need to be aware of his devices. You need to be aware of his schemes. The Bible says, and you can finish the statement, your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to, what? Devour. If he could destroy your home, he would. If he could destroy your business, he would. If he could destroy relationships at work, he would. If he could cause your children to be disobedient and rebel, he would. If he could provoke you to anger, he would try. And so we battle this enemy. And what Paul is saying is put on the armor of God because you're in a battle. Our enemy, beloved, you know this is crafty, he's cunning, and he will do whatever he can to defeat you. And I do not want you to be ignorant of his schemes or I don't want you to be ignorant of his designs. So let me just, as we open this up, to fly high, kind of give you a 30,000 foot text and look at where we're going to be in this text. Let me just for a brief moment, I introduce this text by identifying our enemy. And I'm praying that I could finish with our great hope in the midst of this battle. But first, let me just identify his enemy, his existence, his names, and his activity, okay? Scripture first 
reveals his existence. It reveals his existence. Certainly in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis 3.1, it's very abrupt. You know the text where it says, now the serpent was more craftier than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. You know that text, just abrupt. Everything's good at the end of Genesis 2. And then abruptly, Genesis 3.1, it's the serpent. How did he get there? Well, it doesn't exactly tell us how he got there, but he was there. He was crafty. He was cunning. He was there, if you will, pre-fall. It's still early on. The fall has not occurred at Genesis 3.1. And so the book of Job, you know that as you look at the book of Job, it's in the middle of your Bible, but the book of Job follows, if you're reading chronologically, right after the book of Genesis because it comes that early, though it's placed in the middle, we give it a date after Genesis. It says in Job 1.7, the Lord said to Satan, where'd he come from? He's just there. From where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. He's there. He is, as you know, in his existence, a fallen angel probably the highest angel that was ever created by God. You have a couple places in the text where probably his background is revealed. One is in the book of Isaiah. And in the book of Isaiah, it contains, I believe, his origin. And here in Isaiah, he is speaking to the king of Assyria in Isaiah 14. But we, most scholars, would feel, Bible teachers, that far from it just being a word to the king of Assyria, that Isaiah is giving us a prophetic fulfillment of how Satan fell and how he even appeared in the garden and how he appeared in Job 1.1. It's a prophetical insight into Satan's fall. It says, how you have fallen from heaven. Watch these words, O day star, son of the dawn, how you are cut down to the ground. You have laid the nations low. You said in your heart, remember these? I will ascend to the heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. There some time prior to the fall, he being the the guardian cherub was tossed out of heaven. In fact, in Ezekiel, it says something very similar to the king of Tyre there. He gave an insight again, not only to that king, but an insight into the devil. Thus says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, and beryl, and onks, and jasper, sapphire, and emerald, and carbuncle, crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On that day you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you, and you were on the holy mountain in the midst of the stones, it says, 
of fire that you walk, probably some kind of reference to the glory of God. He was there in the stunning perfection of God's presence all around the angels, and he is walking, if you will, in the midst of the fire, the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless. It said in your ways from the day that you were created, he says, until righteous unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you filled the violence of your, uh, of your, uh, in your midst, and you sinned, and I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub. Your heart was proud because of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. So he was, as an angel, tossed out of heaven, as a fallen angel, And the scripture tells us that when he fell, he took one-third of the demons. One-third of the angels that fell became the demons with him. And these demons, I would think, are in the thousands. Somebody said in the millions. So here's his existence And clearly the Bible speaks of the existence of Satan. And listen, beloved, you know that and I know that, but I'm establishing the biblical doctrine of Satan's existence as opposed to the idea that Satan merely is a myth-like creature and and myth-like character that comes out once a year at Halloween. Far from that being the reality. You could go see the devil's circus in Hanford in a couple weeks. Somebody had sent me a link to the devil's circus that's going to highlight the paranormal in the next couple weeks. But the paranormal is out there, but his existence is real. And you need, you are commanded to stand against him. You are told to put the armor of God on. And so you see, you're seated in the heavenlies. You walk in a manner worthy, but Scott, it's not working like you preached exactly. Help me. Well, here you've got to stand. And so here's his existence. But secondly, not only does scripture reveal his existence, but it reveals his names. It reveals his names. And I'm being brief here, just like the The names of God, beloved, reveal God. Satan's names reveal his character. Not only is his existence real, but his names are spoken of. In 19 books of the New Testament, he is mentioned by one of his names. Say, what are his names? I'll go quick here. In John 12, 31, Jesus said, judgment is upon the ruler of this world. And so there he's called a ruler. Jesus said to Peter, and I'm thinking of the name, in Matthew 16, 23, finish the statement, get behind me, what? Satan. So he's a ruler. His name is Satan. John in 1 John 3, 8 says that the one in our world in the 21st century who practices sin is of the devil, there's another 
word, for the devil has sinned, there it is again, from the beginning. When did he sin? Prior to the fall, he, the anointed guardian cherub, the one who was decked out in brilliance and beauty, became enamored with himself and he wanted to be like God. But he's called the devil in John James, excuse me, 4, 7, submit to God, resist the devil, another one of his names, and he will flee from you. Satan, the term found, I don't want to focus here, found 50 ti- 52 times in the Bible. Do you know what it means? I mean, you, we'd say, oh, it's his name. Yes, that's his name. Is his existence real? Absolutely. That's his name. What does it mean? To put it this way, it just means adversary. Satan is an adversary against God, against holy angels, and against you. In fact, they battle against Michael and the heavenly angels in Jude 9. So that's one of his names. He's a ruler. He's called Satan, which is adversary. He's called the devil 35 times in the New Testament. It's the word diabolos. And that just means, you know what that means? Sometimes we just say these words. But it means slanderer. So not only is he your adversary... He himself in his character is the diabolos, which means that he's out to slander God. He's out to slander the Holy Spirit. He's out to slander Christ. In Luke 22, he entered into Judas. In Acts chapter 5, he said, why has Satan filled your heart to Ananias? And so he's the ruler, he's Satan, he's the devil. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, you know this one, he is called the God of this, what? World, or the God of this age. Satan is the God, excuse me, Satan is the God, little g, of this present age. And it's interesting, the God of this world, sometimes the world is cosmos in the Greek, not there. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he's the God of this age, if you will. He's the God of this little g, present age and system. The system of materialism, the system of humanism, the system system of hedonism, of sensuality, the God, little g, of this world and this age, emphasizing the system that rejects everything that is holy. This is who our battle is against. This is who you fight. You fight an invisible, if you will, foe. It's not flesh and blood. He is controlling and orchestrating evil and destruction and misery and tragedy. One member sent me a text a couple weeks ago. Here's what he said after the, the election a couple weeks ago. He said, and I put it here, I want to get it to you. The illogic of the human populace that lacks moral grounding. 
He said the citizens of California approved the right of a woman to kill the human in her womb until birth, but ban the use of flavored tobacco. Took me a minute to to check that. It's okay to abort a baby in the womb of of a mother But we, the state of California, banned the use of flavored tobacco. Does not the tobacco user have the same right as a woman to control what happens to their body? Quite egregious that the image of God is considered less valuable than tobacco. We live in a fallen world. I just want to remind you that you're not fighting against governments and, and state regulation and we take all of our effort to vote and all those things. You fight an invisible enemy. And he's the devil, he's Satan, he's slandering, he's an adversary. The Bible calls him in John 12 and in Ephesians 2, the prince, you know the phrase, of the power of the what? Of the air. In other words, he's the prince of the evil power of the air. He is leading a host of demons, orchestrating events with evil intent. That's the world in which we live. You know this scripture in 2 Corinthians 11:4 that he disguises himself as an angel of what? Light. He's disguising himself, beloved, as a messenger of righteousness. The Bible gives him another name. He calls him a roaring, what? Lion, 1 Peter 5. The lion roars before eating prey. He is a roaring lion. In another phrase, another name, he's called the evil one. It says in 1 John 5, 18, he who is born of God, praise God, God keeps him from the evil one and he does not touch him. In other words, he's called the evil one. He is intrinsically evil. He delights in tragedy. He delights in perverseness. Of course, another one of his names is he's a serpent. He's a serpent in Genesis 3.1 and it's a characteristic of a serpent to be crafty. He uses subtlety. He uses deceit. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11.3, I am afraid, he wrote to the Corinthian church, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness. In fact, the word just means to hiss. And to whisper, he's crafty, he's cruel, and he takes gullible people by the thousands. Just thinking he's the one who hissed out, hath God really, what, said. She causes doubt. But that's not all. He's the dragon, the dragon in Romans 12, excuse me, Romans, Revelation 12, 9. The dragon means it's his name, okay? He has the power to destroy. In fact, one writer said that Satan is the terrifying general of the demonic army of hell. 
But not only is he the dragon in Revelation 12, it says by another name, he's the deceiver. He's in materialism, government, politics. He's in every form of false worship. He's there to ensnare. He's there to deceive. He's there, beloved, and I'm not, I'm just trying to be a watchman here. He's there to take you unawares. He does it by trickery. He does it by destroying. He does it by defraud. Satan is the ultimate deceiver. That's who he is. He's Satan, which means adversary. He's the devil, which means he's the slanderer. He's the serpent, which means that he's crafty and deceitful. He's the hissing one. He's a tempter, enticing you to sin. He's the prince of the world, of this world. He's ruling systems. He's the god of this age. He's ruling corrupted systems. He's the prince of the power of the air, the demons. He's the angel of light. He's a roaring lion. He's seeking someone to devour. And quietly, you need to wake up. You say, well, Scott, I'm battling certain things. Well, listen, you could be battling your flesh like I can. I mean, we, we have things that are fleshly related, but at the same time here in this text... This is the evil one. So here's his existence, here's his names, and here's his activity. Thirdly, his activity. And again, I'm being brief. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus was tempted by the devil. He said, if you are the son of God, command these stones become what? Bread. He's tempting you to sin. He's tempting you to pride. He's tempting you to greed. He's tempting you to materialism. He's sowing doubt in your heart. He's sowing discouragement in your heart. And listen, I'm not going to go overboard here with an unhealthy interest in him, but he is our enemy. In 1 Thessalonians 3, 5, Paul said, I sent Timothy to you to find out about your faith. Why, Paul? For fear that the tempter might have tempted you. It could be as I speak, some of you are on the edge. Maybe. That some of you are just so discouraged, you, you might think, can I, can I keep going? In my marriage, in my work, in my Christian life. But beloved, his activity is he's a tempter. And I just want you to be aware of that. In John 8, 44... The Bible gives him another activity. He's called a murderer from the beginning, it says. He's a murderer. It's amazing when you look at that thought there, the very first crime after the fall was Cain's, at least described, Cain's murder of Abel, Genesis 8, right? 1 John 3, 12 says, not as Cain for us, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And so there's a link there, if you will, to murder evil and the evil one. Satan, beloved, is the mastermind of all evil. Satan himself sought to wipe out Israel to destroy God's redemptive plan. Satan sought to murder the Messiah in Matthew chapter 2 by killing every male, was it two years and younger. So he, in his activity, is a murderer. I would also add this, he's a liar. 
Now you know that and I know that, but he is a liar. He says, you are, Jesus said in John 8, 44, to the Pharisees, you're your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning, okay? And he does not stand in the truth and there is no truth in him. And whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature for he is a liar and he is the father of lies. And beloved, you know this, that Satan has deceived millions through false doctrine. Millions even today. No wonder Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.1, the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. That's the day in which we live. He's a liar. In fact, you, you don't have to turn there. Remember what he, the serpent, out of his mouth said to Eve, you surely shall not, what? Die. For the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will know the truth. He's a liar. It's one of the biggest lies ever created. She died physically. She died spiritually. It condemns people to hell through the fall of man in Genesis 3. Adding things to Scripture, sub subtracting other things, you surely shall not die. He might be tempting some of you. Hey, it's okay. Just this one sin. Just, it's okay about this relationship. I don't care what my mom and dad say about it. Or this, you know, I'm going to lead her to Christ. Or I'm going to lead him to Christ. He, he's, he's the whisperer. Today, Satan has men in pulpits who deny his word, who doubt his truth, who peddle false doctrine, who twist gender roles, who confuse God's order for the family, all while having a pretense of religious, uh, of religiosity. Satan is in governments. He's an organized religion. He's an individual's, and I'm just saying to you, he's a liar. No wonder Paul gets us to this point. Because if you're going to make your homework, if you're going to raise your children, if fathers are going to be spirit-filled and not provoked, if you're going to be a godly man and a godly woman at work, then listen, here's what you're up against. And maybe I put this one last. He is, in his activity, all the things, there's more, but he's the accuser of the brethren. That's what it says, specifically in Revelation 12, 10. He accuses you before God, how often? Day and night. I don't care if you've been in Christ for 50 years. He accuses you, he accuses the brethren before God, day and night. Now you say, well, Scott, why would, he, why would he do that? I mean, you might reason as I would in Romans 8, 31. If God is for us, then who can be what? 
against us, and I would agree. If he's for us, then who can be against you? Well, nobody really. He says in 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Or who can bring a charge against us? And the answer is no one. If you're sitting here and you're clothed in the righteous of, righteousness of Christ, who will separate you from the, what? Romans 8, the love of God. The answer is not height nor depth. No one. You say, well, what is he doing? He's just robbing you of your joy. He's robbing you of your position in one through three. He's doing many things and he has many devices in his tool shed and he would eat you alive if, if he could. You say, well, how does he do that, Scott? Let me give you seven ways, pretty quick here. I'll tell you exactly, and maybe it's not contained to these. Say, so how does he take my joy? Well, number one, by distracting you in life and purpose. He just would love to distract you. He'd love to have you come to church once every three weeks, once every four weeks. He's going to distract you, and some of the distractions may look good, but he's subtle. He's crafty. He keeps you away from this place, and he could just be distracting you all over the place. That's one of his tools. Number two, by discouraging you. Ah, I just... I've been a believer a long time and all of a sudden he gets you walking down a track through discouragement. You've lost your joy. You've lost your peace. Some trial has come your way. Some job problem. Some financial issue. He, he can't separate you from the love of God. But I'll tell you this, he can distract you. I'll tell you this, he can discourage you. He can cause you to get your mind off of Christ, off of his word, off the power of the gospel, off your glorious position. And you just go down a path like the fish that's led out of his secret place be, being pulled away by the lure. Thirdly, okay, not only by uh, dis distracting you, by discouraging you. Thirdly, to cause you to be discontent. I don't know where sometimes there's just times that are hard for us, but you cross a line somewhere and he just reminds you that you following Christ really hasn't mattered. And he causes discontent to come in your life through a relationship, through a job, through a child, through a grandchild. That somehow it's not what it could be and he would love to make you discontent. Maybe it's a lack of forgiveness, whatever. It, he, there's a bunch of things that he would do. Number four, by dividing your relationships. Is that fair? We're all about unity here and he would just love to divide you. He would love your home not to be a place where grace rules he would love to have anger get into your heart. So Ephesians 4, you're giving the devil every opportunity for anger. So Paul said, don't let the sun go down on your anger, but he's going to fester that and fester the discontentness in that. He's going to divide your home, divide your kids. Listen, don't be unaware of his devices. Number five, he's going to cause you to doubt his 
word. That's what he does. He's going to cause you to doubt his promises. He's going to cause you to read scripture. He's going to hiss at some point, maybe through the system, maybe through a person. Has God really, what, said And all of a sudden, you've been walking for Christ many years, and then you get duped because he's bringing distrust into your heart, into your life, and he's causing you to doubt his word, that he's a master at it. Number six, by deceiving you with false doctrine, he's deceiving people in Kingsburg. He's deceiving people in Reedley. He's deceiving people in Fresno. We've got millions of people, evidently close to 40 million in California. And what he does is he deceives through false doctrine. He raises up pastors that come out of sham schools that don't believe in the authority of the word of God. And he puts them in pulpits for this purpose, to deceive the naive. And then finally... Number seven, he's dividing, he's causing doubt, he's deceiving. Seven, by by destroying you. He would love to destroy your family. He would love to destroy your reputation. He would love to destroy your business. He would love to destroy those in leadership. And when you begin to look at this, you say, well, Scott, what hope is there? And listen, there's great hope. You say, well, how do I overcome this one? Look at the text in verse 10. He says, finally, and then he says this, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. He does not want you to cower. He does not want you to cower in a corner. He he doesn't want you to be fearful. He wants you to be strong. He wants you to stand. He wants you to put your armor on. He wants you to put on the breastplate of righteousness. He wants you to put your helmet on. He wants you to take up the word of God. He wants you to put the shoes on, which is the gospel of peace. He wants you to stand. Stand, therefore, it might be one of the greatest statements in all of the Bible. Listen, as we go forward, I'm going to unpack what this means to stand. I'm going to spend some time on the armor of God. If Satan is our foe and our enemy, and he is, we see his existence, we see his names, we understand his activity. But listen, Paul's writing for you to be strong. He's not, you know, writing for you to run and turn. He wants you to stand your ground. He wants you to take up the weapons of warfare. Because with his every device, he's provided, if you will, has God through the scripture, a remedy to that device. And he says, be strong. You say, well, Scott, I have no strength today. That could be. But you, you got to look at what it says, though, and we'll pick it up next week. Look, be strong, not your strength, but in the, what? In the Lord. Your, your strength isn't yours. It's in the Lord. It's in your relationship with Christ. It's in your union with Christ. But he doesn't just stop there. Look at verse 10. He says, and in the strength, I love this, of his, what? Might. In other words, the power in Ephesians that raised Christ from the dead is the power that resides in you. 
The power that lifted him up out of the grave is the same power, Ephesians 1, Ephesians 3, that lives inside of you. And so here it is. You don't have to sin. You have an ability, you have a way, you have a means. You have resources in this tool belt. It's not you, it's in the Lord and it's in his mighty strength so that right now, I could say this, he's commanding you, it's a command, to put on the armor of God. In other words, he wants you to stand against the evil one. In fact, I'll share this in a couple weeks. He wants you to be strong in his strength. And the verb there is passive. In other words, the power isn't you. The power isn't you pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. The power is in the power of Christ who lives within you. And he's going to give you every means to overcome the evil one. Listen, this is going to be quite a series, okay? I don't want to get an unhealthy interest on him. Not in any way. In fact, I think the whole point of it is to stand to withstand, to stand, therefore stand and put this armor on so that you can defeat the flaming missiles. Like I, here it is. It's like, there's, an, there's a word picture here. He is in the present darkness firing these flaming missiles. What are they? Well, doubt, discouragement, defeat, and he's firing them, but you need to extinguish them by putting up the shield of faith. But listen, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the what? The world. Don't be discouraged today. Don't have an unhealthy interest on him. On the other hand, don't deny that this is biblical truth and God's providing every means. You say, I don't know, pastor. I'm really struggling with this. I'm really struggling with lust. I'm struggling with pornography. Well, I'll finish here. No, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, not Satan. No temptation has what? Overtaken you, but such as is common to what? To man. It's not too big of a deal for God, okay? And God is what? Faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but in every temptation, he will provide you a way of what? Escape, and then we usually finish there, but he's not done there, comma, that you may be able to endure it. There is nothing you face or I face that God's power doesn't reside in you. And listen, you, I'm measuring my words. You better be talking to your children at some point on this. Because I already know that Planned Parenthood is in the elementary schools. Systematically unrolling your child's mind so that their goal is for that 16 year old to have three abortions by the time she's 16. It's a big money-making business. So listen, I just want to be wise. I just don't want, I want to be a good watchman for you. Listen, you come, you pack this place out. Woody's going to preach next week and then I'll be back two weeks right in this text, okay? Bow your head with me. Let's pray.